All right, you should have a handout in your hand. Uh, the bolded passages are the ones that we're going to look at together. Um, so you can turn to that first text. I believe it's Ephesians chapter 4. It is wonderful to be gathered together this evening. Um, as, as you know, as we voted, this is over a year's worth of investment and labor and even more. Um, and we're grateful to how the Lord has led us through this process, through many months and uh, many hours of teaching and discussion and hearing from you. So we look forward to what the Lord will do uh, among us as we move forward. Um, we'll trust him for those results. All right, I want to talk about tonight, this is a good opportunity as we're thinking about our Constitution to think about one of the other founding documents or foundational documents for our church, our church covenant. Um, you'll notice, does anybody need a handout real quick? Okay, I have one there. Do we have a couple more? Okay, excellent. Um, you'll notice on the back of your sheet uh, is the covenant, and we'll read through that very briefly. Next Sunday, um, during the service, we're going to focus on the Lord's Supper um, for the entire service. We're going to take our time as we think through giving thanks to God for the work of the gospel. Um, so this would be a wonderful service for you to invite an unbelieving friend or neighbor um, as we think through that together. I just wanted to mention that. All right, what is a church covenant? I, I don't know about you, but I didn't grow up in a church where I even knew if we had one, we never would say it. Um, so it was, it was somewhat new to me. And as I began looking through our current constitution years ago, it said that we would recite our covenant after the ordinances. Um, and I was pleased to see that because as I've begun to study and understand how God can use a covenant to bring a body together, this has been something that over time the Lord has strengthened our bond and our commitment to who we are as the body of Christ. A church's covenant is the voluntary promises that the individual members make before God and before one another to live together as the church family he created us to be. These are solemn promises. And what I want you to see as you look at that on the back of your sheet is that you'll notice these aren't promises that we're making so that we can be the body that, that we want to be or this kind of community that we want to have this sense of belonging to. These are commitments that scripture gives to us. How does the Bible tell us we're to live and behave towards one another. This is what it actually means to be a member. There's, there's no word member as in membership in our Bibles, is there? But all throughout the New Testament, there are these ideas of sacrificial commitment into the lives of other believers, of investment, of accountability, of love toward one another. And that's what membership is supposed to be. Very often we lose sight of that. That's part of why we have a church covenant. We need a regular reminder of our priorities and a recommitment to follow him together. Now, why? One author has written this. Our culture has shaped us into professional spectators. Rather than getting out and exploring, we watch the travel channel, right? And we see different places that we probably couldn't ever go to. That's not wrong in and of itself. Rather than finding a great recipe and creating a gourmet meal, though, we watch Rachel Ray or some other professional cook. Rather than getting out and playing sports, we watch them. Rather than getting to know our neighbors or coworkers, we get involved in pseudo-relationships 
on Facebook or even uh, social media in general or maybe even a reality show. These types of things allow us to sit back and watch, just observe from a distance, not get involved. But strangely, in the, midst of, in the midst of this spectatorship, we've come to believe that we're truly part of that thing just by watching and observing. We're being taught something in that. Think of it this way. If you ask people to talk about themselves, one of the things they might tell you is maybe their favorite team. Nobody would say this in here, but I'm a Cowboys fan. Okay, I know, I know a couple that might say that, for better or for worse. Uh, or I'm really into Star Wars. Their favorite entertainment is how they'd identify themselves. Sometimes the same thing happens at church if we're not careful. Well, that's my church. Well, who are you investing in? Well, nobody, but that's, that's where I show up. People often view church as a weekly pick-me-up or a good place to make friends. Or perhaps if the preaching and music are good, church can be viewed almost like a mini concert or a pep rally. And those are good things. We want people to be encouraged. We want them to feel like they're a part of the church. But we want to be even more intentional than that. We want to be biblical. Church was never meant to be a spectator sport. The church is made up of individual followers of Christ who come together to love and serve as one body so that the gospel message then may be seen and taken out into the world and God's glory can be displayed as we work for unity. It's work, the Bible tells us. We'll see that in a few moments. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are an integral part of the body of Christ and you need to live that out in a local fellowship. The church is not a sign at the road or a building or times that we meet in the week, it is us. And we need to keep reminding ourselves that's what the church is. We are the church. We don't need a building to be the church. We heard that demonstrated so clearly as we heard a presentation about China. This evening, I want to review with you why we have a church covenant and why we rehearse it regularly. Now, perhaps that question has come to your mind when we recite this three minute or so long statement that sometimes might seem uncomfortable or maybe unfamiliar or even formal. What value does the regular reciting of our church covenant offer to our church family? First, our church covenant is important to keep before us because we need to be reminded that we need each other in order to grow. God never intends for his people to grow in isolation. We need each other, and we need to be reminded that we need each other. We're seeing that demonstrated in Paul's letter to the Philippians. There are about 59 one another commands in the New Testament, requiring us to live together in specific ways. We must love one another, bear with one another, forgive one another, confess our sins to one another, and build up one another. Turn now to Ephesians chapter 4 if you're not there already. We'll look at the first six verses of that chapter. What I want you to notice is at the end of the chapter, which member of the God, rather at the end of this section, which member of the Godhead is being highlighted, okay? Look for that as we read. Verse 1, Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. That's that salvation calling to which you have been called. 
Now walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, a delighted attitude to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord. I believe that refers to Jesus Christ. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This passage is telling us that our spiritual unity is to be lived out in such a way that it reflects the singular focus of our triune God. Do you see him, all three persons mentioned, highlighted? The triune God is interested in our unity. Our triune God commands us to pursue it. Our unity and gospel commitment to one another directly reflects on him and what we believe he calls us to be, his power to change us. So if our interactions with one another are to be shaped by his nature and actions, how should that affect the way we care for fellow believers in need? How should that affect the way we pay attention to one another? This is on the mind of the triune God. It should be on our mind as well. What I want you to see clearly this evening is that our life together isn't just for our good. We're not talking about this so we can be a better community. It's for his glory. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as it is called today, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This text warns us of the dangers of this lone ranger kind of Christianity. This is not God's intention. You need to be spiritually investing in the life of other believers to help rescue them from wandering away. This text tells us this is the body's responsibility. And then we know this passage well, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. How do we do that? Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. So what we need to hear in that text that's so familiar that we hear saying get together, it's the purpose there is not primarily for worship, but for edification, for mutual investment. Verse 25 ends, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's the same argument we saw in Philippians 1 this morning. There's a day coming where we will give an answer. Encourage one another as that day draws near. But notice also in this text, there's no pastor present. Nor is he emphasizing the public ministry of the word. This is the work of the church family, of the members, of the body. So how are you obeying this text? We have Bible studies that happen throughout the week. We have life groups and community groups, outreach projects, as we just heard, personal evangelism efforts that all need the support of individual members of the body. One author writes, formalizing our obligations to one another through commitment to one local body through rehearsing covenant promises helps us commit to each person who joins our church. It aids our sense of ownership and responsibility. It reminds us of our God-given priorities as followers of Christ. That's how our covenant serves us. It gives form and shape to our discipling relationships. It says these are the people to invest in. Second, 
because we need to be reminded to proactively love one another. Turn now over to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Look at five verses there. First John 4, verse 7, it says, Beloved, so these are again believers, let us love one another. Because love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. The point is you can't get close to a loving God and not be changed by that. And not have that work itself out in the way that you treat others. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest or revealed among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live. So now John's rehearsing the gospel. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's how far love goes for God and Jesus Christ. He exhausts the wrath of God. And now John makes an application, a conclusion. He says, beloved, if God so loved us to this degree, to this end, this deeply, we also ought to love one another. That's a bar I can't reach in my own strength. I can't love you and you can't love me like this unless I'm getting to know God a whole lot better. Unless I know that love of God, that love he has for me and see that working out. See, this aspect of church life, as we mentioned this morning, is both the most difficult but also the most important. It's difficult because the more involved you get in somebody's life, you can see this in your families. The more you get involved in someone's life, the more you'll see their sins and their flaws and the annoyances and the hardships, and you'll not be sure you want to continue to invest in them. But this is when we need to remember how we've been loved that we will need to love them as Christ has loved the church. And if we're understanding how the New Testament presents the church, the church is a hospital for the spiritually sick. There's none of us that are fixed up and perfect. But as we're walking with the Lord, we, we share that and help other people walk with the Lord, knowing that one day we'll need their help as well. None of us have it all together. We need humble and gentle brothers and sisters in Christ who are willing to admonish and pray with us and encourage us. And we need to do that for others as well. Listen to how Ephesians 4, 15, and 16 tells us that we're going to mature as a church family. It says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint, every member with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, when we, each part is investing, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It builds itself. As we're connected to him, we're building up others. Paul tells us in Colossians 2.2 that part of the progress of a church moving toward maturity is that we are being knit together in love. That's a litmus test that we could apply to ourselves. Again, like, like Paul says in Philippians 1, we see love among us. We see, I see every week, many instances of you caring for other people in the body. 
But our prayer is like this morning that it would abound. It would almost explode more and more that people would look and say, that's, that's not how a normal church, even in Greenville, acts or functions. I want you to think of all the problems in the church of Corinth. Perhaps this is the church that's the most messed up in the New Testament, right? These are selfish and arrogant believers. They come together for the Lord's Supper. There's an accompanying meal. And the rich who are well cared for and provided for start eating and leave out the poor who need this food, this provision. There's divisions around which spiritual leader is better and which faction they're a part of. They're taking each other to court publicly. And in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul then teaches this immature body about the importance of love. He writes in verse 1, If I have this amazing gift, and I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't do it out of love, I'm just making noise. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm just like a little kid that got one of those pots and is just banging away. There's no rhyme or reason. They're just making noise. Love binds the people of God together in order that they might glorify him. Number three, why do we recite our covenant? Because we need to be reminded to proactively serve one another. Look at Romans chapter 12. Paul writes, for as in one body we have many members... And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. And individually, we are members one of another. We belong to each other. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Again, think of this. this these, are, these are the spiritual disciplines that we practice in the life of one another. 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's manifold grace. You see, every believer is called to make disciples. There's one mission in the church, one, make disciples. This is our work both inside this body and outside these four walls. It's the most basic and fundamental call of God in the life of every follower of Christ. You will one day stand before your king and faithfulness will look like being able to answer the question, have you made any disciples? Who's following Christ better because of your investment in their life? That's faithfulness. Mark Dever writes in his excellent book, Discipling, the Great Commission is given to all those who would be disciples of Jesus. This command is given to every believer at all times Discipling is basic to Christianity. How much clearer could it be? And then he concludes with some force. We might not be his disciples if we are not laboring to make disciples. This is so clearly the foundational mission of every believer. If we ignore it, maybe we don't know our king. Maybe we don't know the king who gave that command. Fourthly, because... We need to be reminded that as a church, we exist for his glory. I think this is the most important one. So turn to Romans 15, 5 through 7. This will be our last passage. And then we'll, we'll briefly look through our covenant together. 
verse 5, Paul gives this admonition or this prayer. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. This is unique. It's spiritual. It's Christological. That together you may with one voice, a unified voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, practically welcome, embrace, receive, invest in, commit to, participate with one another in the same way that Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's what we want to be as a church. That's what we want to be. We are not concerned about the number that we have, the attractiveness that we have, the relevance that we have, we're concerned with that. We exist to glorify our Lord. And everything else needs to be filtered through that paradigm, through that thought. 1 Peter 2.9, it says, we've heard this passage many times. It's, it's excellent for us to remember who we are. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We're not our own. We are his possession. And he says we have a purpose for being this people so that you may proclaim with your mouth the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. One more passage, and again, we talk about this one often, but this tells us, again, who we're to be and what God wants to do with us as a body committed to one another. John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. There, John, again, is saying, the way that you treat one another reflects on me. The way you're able to treat one another, that power is to come from me. Verse 35, by this, the way that you love one another as Christ has loved you, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. If someone who did not know Christ came and viewed the way that we interact with each other, that was able to listen in on some private conversations, would they be able to say, those are his disciples? Or would we distract them? Would they have no idea who we really follow? That he has the power to change our lives at all? Our covenant demonstrates that we exist as a church for his glory. We need to remind ourselves and one another on a regular basis. So when you recite that covenant next week, after the Lord's table... We are reminding ourselves we do not exist for our own purposes, but for his. We're not seeking to build a church, again, that's the most appealing, the most relevant, the most authentic, though I think those things likely develop to some degree as we follow his purpose. We're a people that are to live in such a unique way that others can't help but see our God. Now, what does our church covenant say? There's, there's three portions. Um, we'll break it up, and we'll actually move very quickly through this. Um, I'll give a couple of comments through each little section. 
Uh, there's three parts of our covenant, the introduction, the promises, and the benediction. The introduction, having been led by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we do now in the presence of God in this assembly, in dependence on His grace, most solemnly and joyfully renew our covenant with one another as one body in Christ. Three points to note in this introduction. First, the covenant is made by Christians only. We're affirming that we receive Jesus by repentance and faith in Christ alone. That's who we are. We're his. Number two, the covenant is made by baptized believers. Infants cannot profess faith. Third, this covenant can only be kept in dependence on his grace. These are ethical commitments that we're making before God and one another. We need his help to keep them. The promises, we will work and pray for the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Unity in any group or organization is fragile. It has to be watched and cared for and maintained. That's especially true in a group that voluntarily chooses to gather together. That's even more true in a voluntary gathering of a group of people who come from all kinds of different backgrounds and the only thing they're coming together for is Jesus Christ. Jesus calls a sheep for a reason. Sheep need to be in a herd and they need a shepherd. We're to be careful not to separate ourselves from others in the flock. In Ephesians 4, Paul has urged a local congregation to carefully work and pray for unity as we saw. Therefore, we need to be careful with each other's reputations. We need to be charitable in our viewpoints of other believers. We must not major on minor issues. We should be careful how we speak to and about leaders in public and private meetings. We should be careful how we speak to and about fellow members in public and private. In this particular promise, we're stating the unity of the body takes work and prayer and we are committing ourselves to that work. The next line, we will walk together in Christian love, bear the burdens of one another, exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, and as occasion may require, faithfully admonish and entreat one another. We will aid one another in sickness and distress, seeking to cultivate Christian sympathy and feeling and courtesy and speech, being slow to take offense and always ready for reconciliation. Are we bearing one another's burdens as we're committing to do so? Are we challenging each other when we see sin? That, that takes a lot of relationship capital, doesn't it? Are we encouraging one another to pursue Christ instead of the world? What's our effort? What's our responsibility Monday through Saturday? How do you bear someone's burdens if you don't really know them? How do you speak into their life without knowing them? Next, the next lines, we will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together nor neglect to pray regularly for one another. So we consider this, ask yourself if everyone in the church were as committed to the body as you are by their attendance and by their investment in the lives of the body, how healthy would this church be? If you were the standard and everyone participated like you did, what would the church look like? Would it be healthy? This is especially true of our leaders. They're to be examples, and by their actions, they're to lead. When you think of the healthiest Christians that you have ever been around or that have influenced your life, 
What does their commitment to the church look like? It's not likely that you were influenced by someone who attended church very sporadically, who didn't care about it, who showed up but never invested in anyone. How could they have influenced you? You can be here, you can be present, without obeying God's command to stir up others to love and good works. You can fill or warm a seat. But that's not what God calls us to be as a church. A gathering of growing believers is one of God's primary means of grace in your life. If you forsake his plan, you're forsaking the opportunity for growth in your own life. Next, we will seek to bring our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And by a pure and loving example, seek the salvation of our family and friends. We consistently teach that God has called parents to disciple their children. If you're as faithful as you could possibly be to the services we gather, you're here for maybe four, five of the, I believe it's 168 hours of the week. Our job is to help you disciple your children. But all of God's people are responsible to invest in the growth of the next generation. That's why it's helpful to be in a life group and let your kids get to know people of various ages and let them hear the prayer request and see them interacting around God's word. The entire church is to play an important role in the development of the next generation. We need to encourage each other as we pray for the salvation of our family and friends. I don't know your family and friends. I don't have the influence that you do, but you have those relationships for a reason. We need to encourage each other to take advantage of the opportunities God has given us. We do that as we share testimonies, as we pray for outreach, as we think and learn about evangelism together. Next, we'll contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel both to our community and to all nations. Through consistent sacrificial giving, each individual member has an important role in financially supporting the church's mission. Next, we'll seek by the Spirit's guidance to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts because of his grace. We will remember that as we've been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again. So there is on us a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. That's the argument of Paul in Romans 6. You're dead to yourself. You're alive to God. You're to live that way in this world. We need encouragement not to tie ourselves to this life, don't we? That's our natural tendency. The next line, we will, when we move from this place, as soon as possible, unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. It's been commented through the years that, does this mean we're just kind of hurrying people off? N not at all, not in any way. What we're saying is, we believe you need to be connected to a body of believers. We need to be a part of a gospel-centered, word-dominated group of believers. And we want you to be unified with that group as soon as is possible and reasonable. Membership isn't about a particular affection for only one group of Christians. We're not building a super road kingdom here and all other kingdoms are of lesser importance or value. We are praying for the gospels to work to advance not Subaru Road's name to be known. Membership is about commitment and unity with a church family in which God has physically placed you. So when you transfer your membership, you're building the local church. You need to do that carefully and thoughtfully and intentionally and make sure you're doing that well. 
the last lines then, the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. These words come directly from 2 Corinthians 13, 14. If you're in Christ, you know the grace of Christ. You know the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. This benediction is a prayer for still more and a concluding recognition of our supernatural identity. This leads us to think and, and pray and work to be a church that honors and glorifies our King. We want to be a church that is clearly identified as supernaturally redeemed children of God who are committed to honest discipleship, who are committed to loving each other, even though that can be hard, who are committed to caring for each other, even when it's inconvenient or difficult. The application of this covenant, these promises that we make, is to think, how can I better live out the spirit of these promises? We should be thinking, who? Who can I invest in? Where's God urging you to get more involved. Think in terms of other believers. What one person in the body would the Lord have you invest in? Start by committing to pray for that person this week. Then ask yourself how you might go about investing in his or her life. How can you deliberately do spiritual good in their life? Maybe just shoot them a text, letting them know you're praying for them this week and asking for their prayer requests. Invite them to join you in studying an excellent Christian book or a book of the Bible. Invite them for a coffee. Ask them intentional questions about their walk with the Lord. Use your imagination and take the next step by reaching out. Be proactive. There's eternal joy and even reward in being used by God to disciple others. Why would we not give our lives to doing this? Have you ever seen a beautiful mosaic? or watched a really great team work together? Maybe you think of a, a symphony, an orchestra that plays beautifully together, in sync, in harmony. Each piece or team member contributes to the whole. Each piece has a part to play in the design. They're happy to contribute wherever they can. If you take out one piece, the picture is no longer complete. If one of the members of that team is missing or injured, then the team as a whole doesn't perform as it could or should. So as a church, we are committing together to let God shape us into his design for the world to see. We are that mosaic. We together are the light of the world. And Jesus said in John 13, the way that we shine brightest to those who don't understand the beauty, the love, the uniqueness of Christ is by how we love each other. So I pray the picture that we're painting will become brighter and brighter as we continue to grow in Christ together, as we love one another, as we renew these commitments to each other. Let's pray, and then we'll close our members' meeting. Our gracious God in heaven, we are grateful for how you have worked in our lives, for bringing us together as a church family. We pray that you would strengthen us, that you would encourage us in our responsibilities, Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom to know how to invest and that we would honor and glorify you above all things. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.